Amen. And as you are seated, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day we can join in, in worship of you, for you are worthy of our praise. We pray now as we come to your word that you would continue to speak to us through it uh, by the power of your spirit. Would you lead our hearts to your truth, help it to encourage us today, to convict us, to make us more like your son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for being with us today and for uh, coming, worshiping with us. Thank you, especially those of you who are downstairs taking one for the team. And uh, we're glad you're here too, and just get to, to worship as one body. So, the last two Sundays, through God's Word, we have been witnesses to God's majesty. As the Apostle John has escorted us into his vision of the throne room of heaven, in the midst of spectacular beauty and glorious splendor, awesome power, transcendent holiness, and in the presence of mighty angels, heavenly rulers and creatures, and of course, God the Father, the one seated on the throne, God the Son, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain, and God the Holy Spirit. We heard enthralling words and songs being proclaimed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Like these scenes were meant to blow us away with how holy and worthy and awesome God is. But here's a question that you may or may not have considered. How do we get there? How do we get there? Like this should be the ultimate goal of our lives. God is the ultimate goal end, to see him, to dwell in his presence, to worship and serve him forever, what the theologians call the visio dei. Like there's no greater destiny than this. Besides the alternative's hell. But when we hear things like that, when we hear attempts to describe the absolute glory of God's presence, it might concern us. We wonder, how could we ever have the right or the ability to be there? Like we resonate with Isaiah the prophet's response, imagining we'd feel the same. Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like how could we ever deserve to walk into God's presence, let alone stay there? How could we bear his holiness? How could we witness such power? How could we stand and live in the presence of his glory? The short answer is we couldn't. On all of the above, unless God prepares us to do so, which thankfully we believe he will do. 
But that still doesn't answer the prior question of how can we even get there? How can we be welcomed into the courts of the king of all kings? If you would, please turn in your Bibles or turn on in your phones to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. For 2020, we have committed to learning one new song a month based on the Psalms. And today's song, Psalm 24, I think dovetails quite nicely with Revelation 4 and 5. It's a, it's a song for a king. And not just any king, the king of glory, our Lord and God. Psalm 24 was one of the many psalms written by King David. Some refer to it as a coronation or enthronement or re-enthronement song. A song to sing as a king entered his palace or took his seat on his throne. It's possible that Israel would have sung this whenever the Ark of the Covenant was brought or returned to its proper place in the tabernacle or in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, you know, specially signified God's presence among God's people. And so as the Ark returned home, it was like the king was returning to his throne. And you'll see what I mean, but you can almost sense as we go through this song, being part of a royal procession, moving with the king from the, the far reaches of his kingdom, through the countryside, up the mountain to his home, and then into the city and the courts of his presence. Follow along with me. We'll start at the beginning. Verse 1 says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Ownership. Ownership. Like this is something we feel about our wealth and our possessions from an early age. You can say, hey, that's mine, about anything from a toy car to a sports car. And we, but ownership may be one of our biggest delusions as people, actually. Oh, from a human perspective, from a legal perspective, we own certain things in life. But what do we actually have a total and permanent claim on over in our lives? Anything? Like, is there anything that you can guarantee will still be yours in 50 years from now? Hey, God, on the other hand, has a claim over everything we know and see. Verse 1 said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or everything in it, or all it contains, including every one, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything, everyone is the Lord's. Now just think, that means that every ocean, mountain, river, and tree belongs to him. It means that every road, city, building, and home is ultimately his. It means every person, from his friends to his foes, is his to do with as he wills. It means every squirrel in your yard is his squirrel. Every bird is his bird. It means every molecule of oxygen is his to dispense. It means 
Everything you have a claim on as yours is actually ultimately his. Every dollar, every toy, every piece of tech, every loved one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And given the context of this psalm, I believe this is meant to display God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is a a word that we use theologically to describe God's absolute power and control. But sovereignty is also a a word that people use more generally to describe a rule or reign as a ruler. Kings and queens are sovereigns, and they have sovereignty over their realms. I think we can actually get hints of both sides of sovereignty here in Psalm 24. They're, they're interrelated. God is almighty and in control, yes. And he also rules and reigns over all that he has made. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's like this describes the extent of his kingdom or his dominion. And here's the main point I think we can see. That our Lord's reign is all-encompassing over the world. Our Lord's, our King's reign is all-encompassing, includes everything, all-encompassing over the world. Verse 1 makes this huge claim. So we wonder, maybe, like, why? How is everything actually the Lord's? So David says in verse, he says, the world and those who dwell therein, for, or because, he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Now, that's actually very similar to the reasons given in Revelation 4 for why the one seated on the throne is worthy to be worshipped. Because he made it all. Right here, that's why everything most truly belongs to him. For he has founded it upon the seas. He's established upon the rivers. He's, He's the founder. He's the establisher I don't know if you know the the history of the city of Ottawa, but it was first officially founded as a town back in 1826 by Colonel John By. It was a a logging settlement at the time and originally named Bytown after its founder. Now, did Ottawa actually belong to Colonel By? Not really. The land already previously existed, and and it would be owned by a nation afterward. But within that time, he he did have a level of authority and influence and power in the newfound town. And we still live and walk among much of what he established 200 years ago. Now, God is the founder and establisher of the earth to a much greater degree than this, because All that he founded was built from and on that which he already owned. And after he founded it, it would still be his possession. Think of it this way. Whatever we create in life is ours on some level. Like whether we're talking about an art project or a book or a song that we write or a poem, a piece of furniture, whatever. We have certain instinctual rights as creators, right? Unless, unless we are making it for someone else, like maybe they hired us, they're paying us to build them a home. 
or unless we give it away as a gift to someone else. We revoke our ownership. Or unless someone, we use someone else's resources to create it, and they thus have a prior right to it. Like, if my kids draw a mural on a wall in my house, they don't own the wall. It's still mine. We didn't have God make the world for us, even though he did make it to share with us. And he created the world first and foremost for it to display his own glory. He also didn't give the world away to anyone, even if he gives so much to us as a gift. And he didn't use anyone else's resources. He created it all from his own, all from scratch. He is the full owner. He has every claim. We have no claim. The question for us is, do we acknowledge his rule? Do we see him as king over all the earth? Do we treat the Lord as our king? Have we offered him our allegiance? Do we recognize his rightful claim over our lives? Like, we're some of those who dwell therein. Like, we don't have a right to our next breath unless he gives it to us. Are we grateful for all that our king has provided for us here on earth as his subjects? And are we taking care of the gifts that he has entrusted to us? Your wealth, your time, your health, your family, your, your life. Really, it, it comes down to, to recognizing his ownership and our stewardship. It's a huge difference there. Like we are to steward what we've been given for the glory of God. So, are you? As Derek Kinder says, the earth's wealth and fertility are seen here not as man's for exploitation, but prior to that as God's for his satisfaction and glory. This view of it is not impoverishing, but an enrichment. I hope we can see it as that today. It's an enrichment for us. When we see God this way as for how great he is, it tends to make us feel small, or at least smaller, usually in a, in a good way. So maybe that's why David goes next in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy presence? And he's the great king over all the earth. Who could ever come before him? And this goes back to the question I asked at the beginning. Like, how do we get there? If, if verse 1 and 2 of this psalm reflects Revelation 4, just exalting in God's greatness as our creator and our king, then verse 3 to the end reflects Revelation 5, just exposing our hopelessness without him, and yet our great hope in our king. See, our Lord's reign is gracious to the purified. 
It's not just all-encompassing over the world. It, our Lord's reign is gracious, but purifying. And you thought, might think I missaid that. Like, isn't God gracious to purify us? Well, yes, of course. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's not how Psalm 24 frames it. Okay, look again with me at verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? In David's time, the tabernacle was brought to its final home in Jerusalem. And if you know the geography of the area at all, Jerusalem was situated on Mount Zion. So in order to make your way to the tabernacle, or eventually a temple, you went uphill. You had to ascend the mountain or the hill in order to stand in God's holy place. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Now, technically, anyone with working legs could have gone for a hike up to Jerusalem. But that's not really what David is asking here. He clarifies it with the second question. And who shall stand in his holy place? The point is, like, who can actually come and stand before a holy God. Who can do that? So what does this mean for us with that we don't have a physical tabernacle or temple that we go to? Well, given that the church and individual Christians are called the temple of God now in the New Testament, we could say that this applies to any time we would seek to worship or pray. Like we enter God's presence to commune or to communicate with him. But this also means that the, the question of Psalm 24 would now be, who could be a Christian at all? Who could ever come before God? And on another level, we look forward to the day that we stand in his perfect presence in glory. So we could also say, who shall ascend to heaven and stand in his holy presence? Now, if you're not quite getting the appeal of this yet, or, or like why we'd want to do this, to enter into the presence of God is the highest honor and privilege imaginable. Most of us would feel it the honor of our life to be invited into the office or the home or the palace of, of some earthly ruler or royalty. Huge honor. How much more so God's. To enter the presence of God, biblically, we see, it also includes pleasures and joys that we cannot fathom. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Joy without any lack. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And like I mentioned earlier, to arrive in God's presence should be the greatest goal or purpose of our lives. All other pursuits, career, success, fame, wealth, family legacy, like pales in compare. Tim Keller comments, all money, talent, health, power, and pleasure in the world are God's. But the greatest treasure he can give us in life is his 
presence. His face, not the gifts of his hands, though they are welcome, is where we find the glory that other things fail to provide. This is why we should want to to get to God's presence. So, back to the question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the answer, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Essentially, the answer is those who are pure in body and in heart can stand before God. Now, that's what freaked Isaiah out. (laughs) I'm impure. I can't do it. Now, you all know something about having clean hands right now. Right? I may have washed my hands more in the last six months than the previous six years combined. (laughs) Maybe. We're constantly thinking that, that our hands or everyone else's hands are contaminated. But this isn't saying that anyone with physically clean hands can come before God. No, this is saying someone with morally clean hands and bodies can come before God. Unclean hands here is, is not dirt or germ-infested hands. It's sinful hands. So if you've ever used your hands for violence against another person, or if you've ever used them to, to take something that doesn't belong to you, or if you've ever used them to touch someone you shouldn't have touched, or, or to click something you shouldn't have clicked, like if you haven't done any of these kinds of things, you've got clean hands, and you're welcome into God's presence. Or wait, no, you don't just need clean hands. You need a pure heart. You have clean hands and a pure heart. And your heart refers to this central inner you. The, the seat of your affections and beliefs and motives. Proverbs calls it the wellspring of life where everything flows from. So to stand in God's holy presence, we need a pure and holy heart. Like Jesus echoes this when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This means that, that we need to, to love. Love only good and holy and pure things. This means we need to have pure beliefs and pure thoughts and pure motivations. It means that we need to avoid anything that would defile our heart or make it impure. And it means that we can't just do the right things, but we need to do them for the right reasons. And in case that doesn't eliminate everyone who's ever lived, there's more. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Now, this is talking about worship and trust from our souls, our, our spiritual selves. If we lift up our soul to what is false, that's, that means we're lifting up our soul to a false god or an idol. And idols come in all shapes and sizes. They're not just little golden statues. An idol is, is anything that we love or serve or adore more than we do God. Be a spouse, or our children, or a significant other. Could be a job, 
or a house, video game, political party, sports team. It could be success, comfort, entertainment, marriage, food, pleasure. And whenever we value something higher than we value the Lord, it's really lifting our soul to it. And if you never, ever do that, then congratulations. You deserve to enter God's presence. But wait, there's one more qualification. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Have you ever told a lie? Ever broken a promise? You ever said anything in an attempt to deceive someone? Sorry, you're disqualified then. Can't come in. You're not welcome before God. You can't worship Him now. You can't enter heaven in the end. And for the record, if you say you've never lied, you're lying. Like, why didn't he put this qualification first? He could have saved us a lot of time. <laughs> he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Hands, heart, soul, and mouth, actions, motives, worship, speech, purity in all areas of life. Now, can anyone actually do this? This sounds like a, a perfect person. We read this and go like, that's not me. I'm not pure. I'm not sinless or, or blameless in any of those areas, let alone all four. And at first glance, verse 5 only seems to pour lemon juice on the wound. It says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. But I can never be that person. I'm not pure. This will never be for me. But I want you to notice something so crucial here. If David was talking about a perfect person in verse 4, why would he need, as verse 5 says, righteousness from the God of his salvation? Like, wouldn't he already be righteous? So why would he need this? Good question. Because there is no one who lives up to the standard of verse 4. And yet, there is a way to qualify for it. By being given a righteousness from the outside. If you think, but the righteousness here seems to come after the pure life, not before. You're right. But that doesn't mean, hear this, that doesn't mean you need to be perfect to be given righteousness. It just means you need to be purified. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, you cannot be this pure, but you can be this purified. You get the difference there? Like one is earned, one is given. And verse 5 shows a God who is 
itching to give us exactly what we need. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In fact, in the gospel, we see both sides of this grace. Like two of the things that Jesus' death accomplished were, number one, cleansing us of our sins, and two, giving us or imputing to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Which means, in other words, God treats us as if we were as pure and as righteous as Jesus. Oh, and I wasn't completely accurate when I said earlier that no one could live up to the standard of verse 4. Jesus did. Right? The only one who ever did. So if, if Jesus can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy presence, something that we saw him very dramatically do last week in Revelation 5, then it means that through him, we too can come and stand in God's holy presence presence. Like if we're to, to ascend the hill of the Lord to his very presence, we got to start by ascending the hill of Calvary and being purified there. And that's where we find just how gracious the Lord's reign is to the purified. Really, verse 5 has never been truer for those who are saved by Jesus. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Do you want the Lord to be the God of your salvation? You want to be your Savior? You want to be cleansed and purified from all that unrighteousness? And seek the Lord. Look at verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Go after him. Seek his face, his presence, his favor. And if you look for these things in Jesus, you will find them. You will find him. Jesus himself says in Luke 11, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And in case you don't think that's talking about salvation, he says right after that, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will he purify you when you ask him? So come clean. And if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to enter the throne room of God, the majestic presence of the Lamb? Jesus is the answer. Come clean. Ask him to save you give you the Holy Spirit, seek his face, and I promise you, you will find him. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Through Jesus, we see like entire generations of us can now stand in his holy place. Like Jacob 
sought the Lord's blessing when he had his face-to-face encounter with God. May we wrestle in prayer and faith to find the blessings of his presence once again. Kids who are listening, I hope your generation outdoes my own in this pursuit and all previous generations. I hope you put us all to shame with how much you want Jesus and seek after him. There is no more worthy goal to spend your lives on. May all our hearts' prayer be above all else to seek his face and dwell in his house forever. So, now that David has has established just who can come along on this royal procession, he concludes by putting the entire focus on the central attraction, the king himself. But something interesting takes place here. In verse 6, David encourages, encourages us to seek God's face. But then, in verse 7 and on, it doesn't look like we come to God. This is God coming to us. This is the Lord taking his throne over us. He comes to us, and all we do is welcome him gladly into our hearts and lives. Here's the final point, that our Lord's reign is to be welcomed in its glory. And to acclaim God as our king, his reign is to be welcomed in its glory. Look at it, okay? As David, as they approach the city, David wants even the the physical structures around them to erupt in response to the glory of the coming king. It says in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates! Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Get out of the way! Raise the gates! Blow the hinges off the doors that the king of glory may come in. And if this is the reaction by gates and doors, you can imagine what people's response ought to be. (laughs) They should be joyful and encouraged by this. Lift up our own heads. Out of the, the gloom and despair of this world, no matter what's going on, like this is true. The king has come, and the king is coming again. We should be exuberant in our praise. This is the king of glory after all. He's coming after us. We should be welcoming his reign gladly over our lives, letting him actually rule over every part of it, gladly giving up our our selfish, distracted worldly pursuits so we can have him. We should be living for his glory first and foremost every day, repenting of any sins that that are keeping us from treating him as our king. Living for his glory. I like what Tim Keller says here. What is God's glory, he asks? It is his infinite weight, his supreme importance, To glorify God is to obey him unconditionally. To ever say, I'll obey if, is to give something else more importance or glory than God. But while glorifying God is never less than obedience, it is more. 
God's glory also means his inexpressible beauty and perfection. It does not glorify him, then, if we only ever obey God simply out of duty. We must give him not only our will, but also our heart as we adore and enjoy him, as we find him infinitely attractive. And there is no greater beauty than to see the Son of God laying aside his glory and dying for us. And you see how, how this psalm always just keeps leading us right back to Jesus? It's because he fulfills this. Like he is the King of glory, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This psalm takes us on a journey of awe at God's expansive reign over the world into despair that we will never live up to his standard and to wonder again that our king has come for us anyway. And lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Without him, we can only hang our heads in shame and sorrow. But Jesus lived out everything here. He can stand in God's presence on his own. And now we can lift up our heads and receive him as our king. You wonder who this king really is? David anticipated that question. Verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord, Yahweh himself. The Lord almighty, strong, mighty, invincible. He's won plenty of battles throughout history, including the ones that won our salvation. The lion has conquered. He's an undefeated king, an undefeatable king. We can trust him. Like in your mind's eye today, is, does God appear this big to you? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Like if not, let God's word fill you with confidence today. Not in yourself, but in your Lord. He is strong and mighty. He doesn't just want to purify you and save you and bless you. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Then, let's repeat these key verses here as a chorus for emphasis. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And again, who is this king of glory? Who is he? Who is so holy? Who is coming to save us? Who loves to, to pour out blessings and righteousness on his people? Who is just waiting to be found by those who seek him? The Lord, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. When we hear this as Christians on this side of Jesus, we naturally picture Christ here. Ascending to his throne in glory as king forevermore. But David could have only pictured this prophetically, dimly from afar. 
Yet he was this thrilled to welcome the glory of God's presence to his city. I wonder how much do we appreciate the glory we've already seen in the face of Christ and received by the Holy Spirit? Or how excited do we get about his already present reign over our hearts? Or how much do we anticipate seeing this spectacular glory in person one day? Our Lord's reign is to be welcomed in its glory. May we acclaim it now and anticipate it for then. It is he, your king of glory. In a minute, Angela and the team will come and teach you the new song we'll learn together. It's based on Psalm 24, but it also makes the direct connection to Jesus as the obvious fulfillment of the King of Glory. Let me conclude, though, with a, a short video clip challenge from the late great evangelist Billy Graham. I just quote him, but I couldn't say it like he does. Go ahead, go ahead and play it, if it does. in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. And we have an assurance of the future to come. What it really comes down to our King of Glory is still on his throne. He'll be there until we get there to see him face to face. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would increase our faith. Help us to trust you here and now today that this is not just theoretical or hypothetical, that this is real, that you are on your throne. You are glorious. You deserve all of us. Lord, you are worthy. You receive our praise now. You receive our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.